Lord Jesus, we just thank you for the word that you've implanted in Sue. We thank you that she's been faithful and worked to prepare, but we thank you above all that you've revealed truth. Lord, give us the hearts that we need to receive what it is that she's brought. Help us not just to be hearers, but to put what we hear into practice, Lord. Bless Sue, give her boldness, give her um, a complete assurance that you speak through her. Lord, and give her a blessing as she shares, in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. The last time I spoke, we were listening to God. We were hearing God. Um, and as Graham said two weeks ago, this section is about responding to God. So we've, we've covered hearing God, and now we're looking at responding to God. So that's the kind of overarching theme. But the specific title for today's talk is direction. So it's responding to God's direction. That may be geographical or it may be a call on your life. God may be directing you towards a task. So whatever the call is, today we're looking at our response. We haven't had a little background sketch today leading up to this, but I do feel that a little bit of background information helps with explaining why Paul's direction had changed. So we're looking at 2 Corinthians and we're also marrying those up with the Psalms. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd like to turn it to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 to 24. And if you have a gadget, if you'd like to turn it on to 2 Corinthians. So no angry birds, no solitaire. And I'll read it out. Now this is our boast, our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand and I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner, so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been Yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. 
And so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness, Paul says, and I stake my life on it that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith that you stand firm. As I said, a little bit of background. Corinth was the main city in Greece. It was on the Roman Empire's trade route from east to west. And so, geographically, it was a spiritual place to take. It was really important. It was pivotal. God wanted Jesus preached in Corinth and for it to go out. It was a key city. It was a city full of culture, commerce and corruption. Everybody knew what the profession of a Corinthian girl was. Paul visited Corinth on his second missionary journey and he met Priscilla and Aquila and they were tent makers and he stayed there for a year and a half and I'm sure he developed friendships and close bonds, spending time with them. He would have gone to the to the um, Baptist church. He would have gone to the synagogue <laughs> and preached <laughs> ahead of his time. Um, and we know that he was effective because he baptised the synagogue leader in Acts 18. So we know that he went in and he preached the word of Jesus, and it was effective. And when he left the church at Corinth, he left it as a strong, as a spiritual stronghold. It, it, it was, it was good. It was on the right tracks. It was focused on Jesus. And the idea was that the Corinthian church would go out to Corinth and take the word of Jesus out. But the problem was Corinth was surrounded by worldly wickedness, and instead of the Corinthian church going out into Corinth. Corinth got into the Corinthian church. Instead of them going outside and influencing it, the outside got inside and influenced the church. This created a couple of problems. The first problem was the Corinthian church went off track. They lost their focus. They started to go wayward. And the second problem was that because Paul hadn't returned and his direction had changed, they accused Paul of being fickle and undependable. And they said, if we can't, tr if we can't trust him, if he doesn't do what he says, then we can't trust what he, what he says about Jesus. And, and basically, they were, they, they were knocking Paul, and, they, and, and so they were withdrawing their support from what they believed Paul was saying. A bit of background, but you'll see why. I've got four points today, and my first point is the most important, and it's the one I'm going to labour the most. My first point is, we need to follow divine direction. God knows more than we know. God's wisdom surpasses human wisdom. He knows what's in the minds, hearts, and thoughts of everybody else, the things that we don't know. He knows what's in the future, the things that we don't know. Divine direction isn't always geographical, and I'll touch on that later, but in this instance it was. 
Paul hadn't returned to where he said he was going to return to. The reason being, he'd left Corinth and he'd gone to Ephesus. And his plans and what he had said was he was going to return back. But there were riots in Ephesus. And because of the riots, he couldn't return. In the end, instead of going back to Corinth, he ended up in Philippi. Paul was forced to follow divine direction. And divine direction is the most important thing that we have to do. It's all right having a good idea, but it's got to be a God idea. It's, it's, it's like an athlete training and having all the zeal in the world, but if they don't know where the, where the track is, if they don't know where, where, the, where the start point is and the finish point is, then all of that training is futile. We see another example of divine direction in um, Mary and Joseph when they leave Nazareth and they go to Bethlehem. And they go in there and they're counted at Bethlehem and she has Jesus. Now the natural thing for Mary to want to do would be to go back to Nazareth. But instead they leave and they go to Egypt and they don't just go there for days or months, they go there for years. And you can read that passage and you can kind of read over it or through it and not get what a big thing that is. Because it's like, I mean anyone will tell you, as soon as you've given birth, you've well, you've had the best baby in the world. You want to show your family, your friends, your work colleagues. And you just want to go back and, and just show this baby off. And it would be like getting this baby, putting it in a car seat, getting into the car, and your husband saying, right, we're going to Spain for two years. And there was no mobile phone to text Elizabeth and say what's going on, Why, you know, or, or, or sorry, we're not going to come and see you for a while. But it would have been a big thing. That would have been a huge thing for Mary. But God knew what was in the heart of Herod. God's wisdom surpassed Mary and Joseph's wisdom. He knew that Herod was in fear of this new baby king being born. And he was going to do something about it. And he was going to call for a mass slaughter of all the infants. So they had to follow divine direction. Divine direction was more important than instinct. I prayed to God about this because I am going to labour this point. And I said, how, Lord, how do I show how important this is in rural Shropshire, in a church full of farmers? And, you know, how do I make it relevant to here? And God gave me this lovely passage. In 1 Samuel, in chapter 6, we read about the Ark of the Covenant. And basically... It was a box. It was a wooden box. It was gilted in gold. It had artwork on the top. It had angels. But the most important thing, more important than the gold on that box, was it, was, it symbolized to the Israelite people that God was with them. And there's a battle between the Israelites and the Philistines, the baddies, and they plunder the ark and they take it away. And unsurprisingly, they get back to their village and they all break out in tumours and boils and we read of rats infesting the place and they, uh, they contact their next friendly Philistine village and they say, we have this lovely box, beautiful piece of artwork, you can put a lot of in it. Um, it was from the Israelites, but we'll give it to you. And the other village have it and surprise, surprise, they break out in boils and tumours and, 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 and I'm sure they're infested with rats. And no doubt they contacted the, another Philistine village and they said, thanks, 
keep the gold box. We don't want it. So they have this discussion as to what to do with the Ark of the Covenant. And the bottom line is, send it back to the Israelites. It's more hassle than it's worth. And we read in Samuel that they're told to put it on a cart, take two cows that have never been yoked to a cart before, take their newly born calves off them, and send them back on their way to the Israelites. Now Mark will tell you, when you take cows and calves and you split them up, it's noisy. The mooing from both sides goes on and on and on, and it's not quiet. You can hear it fields away. Cows have been known to jump hedges to get back to their calves. That is how powerful that instinct is to get back to their young. It would be like going to Telford or Merry Hill and suddenly realising that your toddler isn't in the shop where or, or by you. It's that, that powerful an instinct. Mark often says it's safer to walk through a field with a bull in than a field with cows with newborn calves. They are more dangerous. And in Samuel, it says they did, they did this. They took two such cows, they hitched them to their cart, they took off their calves and they penned them up. A couple of lines later, and the cows went straight towards Beth, towards back, back towards the Israelites. Those cows were under divine direction. It surpassed their instinct to get back to their calves. Sometimes it's, it's sad that, that nature is more in tune with God than humanity. But that is the reality. Divine direction is the most important thing. It's the most important thing to, for it to be a God idea and for you to be walking in the will of what God wants you to do. For my second point, I'll quickly jump back to Corinthians. In verse 17, further down, Paul says, Do I make my plans in a worldly manner, so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? As surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it was always yes. Well, what was Paul saying here? Paul was basically saying, I'm not a man of the world. I didn't say, yes, I will come back to visit you, but really mean no. He's, 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 he's saying, in modern day terms, I wasn't giving you lip service. When I said I was going to come back and visit you, when I said I was going to come back to Corinth, I meant it. It was with holy intent. It was with the right motives. It was with the right focus. My intentions were honest. My intentions were pure. And my second point is every time that we respond yes to God's calling of direction is to follow it through and to do it and not to say yes and mean no. Because in my experience, when you say yes, but really you mean no or you conveniently forget to do what God has asked you, he gives you two options. The first option is, 
He's kind of taken me back around full circuit to the same point and given me the opportunity to do it right second time round. Well, the second option is, worse still, he commissions somebody else and he gives it somebody else to do. When Jesus was in Gethsemane and he prayed, let this cup be taken from me, he said yes, we read about it, but he didn't say yes and mean no, he said yes and he went through with it. And that has to be the greatest lesson in obedience, that when we say yes, when we respond to God's calling, to God's direction, when we say yes, we follow through with it and we do it. As Graham said, we were looking at 2 Corinthians and we were going to look at the Psalms, a block of Psalms, and the Psalm that he gave me to look at was Psalm 33. Interestingly, nobody mentioned it this morning. They mentioned lots of other ones, but not Psalm 33. Thank you. I'm not going to read it all through. Perhaps that might be something you'd like to do when you get back later. But basically, the psalmist, the songwriter, he's praising God. He's praising God because he's saying he's always, he, will, he will back you. If he asks you to do something, he's there. You can trust him. He, first of all, gives us this beautiful picture of how big God is. He, 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 he gives us the, these words to, to draw to mind the enormity of God, his sovereignty, his majesty. He says, you know, he created the heavens, he created the earth, the skies. And he says, um, he gathers the waters of the sea into jars. The psalmist is giving us a perspective. We can stand on the shoreline or we can stand on the cliff edge. And you know when you look out to sea and there's that much expanse of water that you, you can almost just glimpse the curvature of the earth. And you know when you stand there and you think, wow, there's a lot of water. Well, to God, he could put it in a jar. He's saying, if you think the water's big, think how big God is, and he is there. He says in verse 4, he is faithful in all he does. The psalmist is praising God, because if God calls you to do something, he will equip you, to, he, will equip you he will give you the tools, he will be with you, he will back you. No matter how scary it is, he will be in it with you. If you go back and you read the psalm, it says later on in verses 16 and 17, No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. Well, basically, the psalmist is saying, if God decrees it's time for the king to fall, it's time for a country to fall, then it will. The Roman Empire had ranks of armies to try and maintain this massive empire, but when God decrees it's time for an empire to finish, then the empire finishes. The psalmist looks at it from a kind of a community, a, a, a huge size, and then he takes it down to an individual size. And in the next verse he says, A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. Now in the Old Testament, if you were sat on a horse and you were swinging a sword and you were taking on a foot soldier and you would think that, that, that just from the pure height that you, the odds were with you. You know, you've, you've got a heavy sword, gravity's with you, you're swiping at the right height. You would think psychologically, I've, I've got the upper hand here. But what the psalmist is saying is if God's with the foot soldier, even though he might have to stand there and his arms might ache having to hold the sword up, if God is with the foot soldier, 
then that's the person that's going to get the outcome that they want. We've replaced horses today with planes and tanks, but the reality is still the same. It's God that is stronger. So my third point is to do things in the strength of the Spirit. If God directs you to a task and you look at the surroundings, and quite often this happens and and you're overwhelmed and you don't quite know what to do, fall to your knees and do it in the strength of the Spirit. Because if you do it in your human strength, it won't work. You've got to do it in the strength of the Spirit. I wrote down a sentence to try and sum up this point. If God directs you to a task, don't be influenced by underdog circumstances. Because the reality is, you, with God in you, is bigger and better than whatever is in front of you that God is asking you to take on or to defeat. For my fourth point, I'll go back to Corinthians. And at the very end, at the very end of the chapter, Paul says, as I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it, pretty powerful words, that it was in order to spare you that I did not turn to Corinth. And my fourth point is, it's often when we look back on a situation that we see God's hand in it. Not when we're looking ahead, it looks, we can't always make sense of where we're going or where he's leading us. It's when we look back that we can see God's hand in it. Paul's plans had changed. He had planned to go back to Corinth. As I said, because of the riots, he didn't. God knew the riots were going to happen. God could have taken Paul out of Ephesus early and returned him back to Corinth, but he didn't. He held him back and then he directed him elsewhere. Paul eventually ended up in Philippi and he met up with Titus. And Titus sat down with him and he said, things have changed. The Corinthian church are back on track. Not only are they back on track, but they've also, they're behind you, they're for you. Now, Paul knew that if he'd gone back to Corinth earlier, he probably would have given them two bullets. He probably would have given them two holy bullets, but he would have been quite angry. They'd accused him of being fickle. They'd gone off the rails. His message, if he'd gone back earlier or on time, would have been one of of, of negative rebuke, as it was in 1 Corinthians. But because of the time delay, the Corinthian church had had time to pull their act together and had had time to pull themselves together and get back behind him. And Paul could see, when he looked back on the situation, God's hand in it. And that that God had given the Corinthian church time to sort themselves out. It's a bit like a pilot flying a plane through a cloud. A pilot depends on on the instruments in the cockpit. And that's like us depending on the Holy Spirit. But when the pilot has flown through the cloud 
and he looks back, he can see it for what it is. Mark and myself had um, a very real example of this when we were living in Ludlow Road and he was in an amazing job and he had an amazing salary and um, we'd spent lots of money on the house and we'd spent eight years turning it into exactly what we wanted down to having handles made for the doors, new kitchens, bathrooms, log burners, you know, all that malarkey. And it got to the point where we'd just finished it and I had this overwhelming sense that we had to downscale get rid of the debt and get rid of the mortgage. And I didn't quite know how to tell him because it had absorbed a lot of our time. I braved it and I said, I really think we've got to downscale. I know we've spent the best part of 10 years making this house exactly us, but we've got to leave it, we've got to give it up. Much to my relief, Mark said, yeah, I can feel that too. I can definitely feel that. Five weeks later, we were sat in a different living room. And quite often when you do things in the flow of the spirit, there's, like a, there's an ease and there's an energy to them. Mark's work was a very pressurised job and I've known, he, it, was, it was a 24-hour operation he was in charge of and he was head of a central stock steel unit where the steel would come in from abroad and then be distributed around the UK. It was a 24-hour operation. There were juggernauts permanently going through, offloading steel, loading steel. And I've known his phone ring at 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, and he's gone to work, and he's just carried on working straight through, hasn't bothered coming home. I've known him phone me up and say, um, I'm going to be a bit late tonight, and he's just carried on working through, and then work the next day. Those kinds of things have a cost. And the reality was the sleep deprivation alone Mark, as most of you know, you know, he had a breakdown. He was, there was so much pressure at work. There was so little sleep. That was in the November. If we'd have been in our old house, we would have lost it. We couldn't have maintained it. We couldn't have maintained the bills. We couldn't have maintained the mortgage. God had taken us from this house to this little bolt hole, and we'd weathered the storm. And, it, and we came out the other, and it, at the other end and it gave Mark the opportunity to, to, to change job. But the reality was, when God asked us in July to move, everything looked rosy. We could not understand why. But in the November, when we looked back on the situation, we could see God's hand in it. To tie up those four points, as I said, direction... God could be directing you to a change of location, as he was with Paul. But he could be directing you to a change of heart. He could be directing you to a change of situation. He could be directing you to a change of vocation. He could be saying, rely on me for your income. Trust me. He could be directing you to a place of dependency on him. And testing you almost so that you know you can trust him. Let, allowing him to show himself. Is your change of direction for protection, as it was in Mary and Joseph's case, or is it for personal growth? Is God keeping you safe or is he stretching you? I'm sure there's something here for everybody. 
all I can suggest is go back and pray it in. Pray the message in. Look at the scripture and pray it in. And if you don't know which bit is for you, my personal experience is it's the bit where God presses pause, replay, pause, replay, pause, replay, because I don't get it the first two or three times. He has to do it at least four times, and I go, yeah, that was the bit for me, wasn't it, Lord? So when God directs you to a situation, to a circumstance, and you respond, there were four points, and I thought I'd use the points of a compass to try and help you cement them in. So N-E-S-W. N. You need to follow divine direction. Don't follow your own instincts. Follow what God is asking you to do. E. Every time you say yes, follow through with it. Act on it and mean on it. Mean it. Because if you don't, from my experience, you'll probably regret it. S. Strength of the spirit. Do it in the strength of the spirit. Whatever your calling is, whatever God wants you to do, do it in his strength, not in your own strength. Pray. Don't plan it. Pray it. Because the strength of the spirit is the only way to get to the outcome that God wants. And W. Remember, it's often when we look back that we see the hand of God. Don't expect the crystal clear understanding from the outset as to where he's taking you. Just trust him because it's when we look back, that's when we see the hand of God. Thank you. Well done, Sue. Thank you. Yeah.